morning's scripture passage comes to us in a part of the Gospel of John that's known as Jesus' last words or his last will and testament to his disciples. In John's Gospel, it makes up almost 20% of the whole Gospel. Four chapters, beginning in chapter 13, 13, 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was to be crucified. And in these four chapters, he shares with them the summation of all of his ministry with them and his hopes and expectations for them as they carry on without him after his death. This morning's text comes to us after he has shared with them communion and washed their feet and also called out Judas, we know, who will betray him, called him out, and Judas has gotten up and left the gathering. The text begins in the 31st verse of the 13th chapter, so may God open up to us an understanding of this word. When he had gone out, that is Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. In John's Gospel, when Jesus was glorified, that was his passion, his death, his ultimate act of service and love. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask if you knew you had only 24 hours to live. You were able to gather around you your friends and your family. What would you say to them? When I was a chaplain at, at uh, Union Seminary in Richmond, I was privileged to sit beside a man who knew he was, his death was imminent. And he began to share with me transgression and infidelity that he had uh, unfortunately taken part in many, many years before that he had never told his wife about. And as he was telling me this, I had a sense that he wanted me to offer him forgiveness. And I began to understand that what he really wanted was his wife's forgiveness. And so I said to him, you know, it's probably more important that you share this with your wife. It's really not my job to do your dirty work. He understood that and asked that I call her in. She was in the waiting room, and she came in and sat down beside him. And he stumbled through this confession, sharing with her this thing that he had done. And she sat and listened patiently, and then after he was through, she smiled at him and said, I knew that. I knew that all along, and it was the hardest thing I have ever done, but I forgave you for it. 
And he died the next day, having confessed that which was on his heart and having experienced his wife's forgiveness. I once saw a dying woman reach out and grab her two sons' hands. And the last words she uttered to them were these. Be kind. At that point, she sank into a coma and died the next day. In her book, Bird by Bird, Anne Lamont shares how her best friend, Pammy, had been diagnosed with cancer, a single mom like Anne herself. They were inseparable. And Anne was so pained about it, so sad and depressed about it, that she went to talk to Pammy's doctor, who was also a good friend of Anne's, seeking consolation. And her doctor said to Anne, Anne, your job right now is to watch her carefully because she is teaching you and us how to live. From that, Anne Lamott wrote, I remind myself of this when I cannot get any work done, to live as if I'm dying, because the truth is we are all terminal on this bus. To live as if we are dying gives us a chance to experience some real presence. Time is so full for people who are dying in a conscious way, full in a way life is full for children. They spend big, round hours. So instead of staring miserably at the computer screen trying to will my way into having a writer's breakthrough, I say to myself, okay, hmm, let's see, dying tomorrow, what should I say and do today? In his memoir, and autobiography, Days of Grace, Arthur Ashe, the great tennis player in the 60s and 70s who died of AIDS contracted by having a blood transfusion, writes at the end of his book a letter to his young daughter, Camera, who was too young to know that he was dying. It was a letter that he wanted her to read after his death. Personally, it was such a moving letter that uh, Nancy, my first wife, and I included it in our last will and testament. And uh, unfortunately, my two children had the occasion to read it on their own when their mom died. In this letter, Arthur Ashe writes, Spiritual nourishment is as important as physical nourishment or intellectual nourishment. The religion you choose is not nearly as important as a fundamental faith in God. As a child, I went to Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Baptist churches, but now I am Catholic. These and other religions, some of them outside of Christianity, are all roads that lead to God. Beyond the different dogmas must be a sense of yourself as created by God for a purpose and as being under God's law at all times. Be ruled by that rule called golden. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Do not beg God for favors. Instead, ask God for the wisdom to know what is right, what God wants done, and the will to do it. Know the Bible. Religions sometimes clash and compete, but there is a reservoir of truth and guidance in the Bible that is beyond controversy and is always available to you. Do not feel sorry for me if I am gone. When we were together, I loved you deeply, and you gave me such happiness I could never repay you. Camera, wherever I am, when you feel sick at heart and weary of life, or when you stumble and fall, don't know if you can get up again. 
Think of me. I will be watching and cheering you on. What a blessing and gift it is to have the time and opportunity to share words like this as your death is imminent. In fact, the Bible is full of such occasions. There's Moses, who knows that he must no longer accompany the people of Israel into the promised land and that his death is forthcoming. And so we are told historically, at least, that he wrote the whole book of Deuteronomy, the eight million rules and, and cultural laws and codes of the Hebrew faith that the Hebrew people were called to participate in civilly and in family and in worship. Not only did he write that, but the book says he composed a song of three pages length outlining the whole history of God and the people of Israel as well as lifting up his great song of thanksgiving. And not only that, but we see in the book of Deuteronomy that he wrote two more pages offering a special poetic blessing for all 12 tribes of Israel before he cashed it in. What a blessing it is to say what is on your mind. When King David was on his deathbed, having made sure that Solomon, the child of Bathsheba, out of that unfortunate bonding experience, you remember, would be, in fact, king, he called him forward, held his hand, and told him to be strong and courageous and to walk in the law of God. Those were his last words to King Solomon. This morning's passage, I think, is probably the most profound setting of the last words spoken. Jesus has gathered with his disciples, having ministered with them for three years. It doesn't take a Messiah to know that his death was coming. Everyone knew it. The Jews and the Romans had gathered together, and it was only a few hours off. So he sat with them, and he sat with them at table, where he broke bread and said, this is my body, and he poured wine and said, this is my blood, which has been known as the Last Supper. From that Last Supper, he got up and girded himself with a towel and began to kneel at his disciples' feet and to wash those swollen, filthy feet of those disciples as a symbolic act of his life of service and love to them all along. Then he sat back and he began to tell them what it meant. In this morning's passage, he simply said to them, Love each other as I have loved you. Think about it. These last words of Jesus, the one we call the Word of God made flesh, the revelation of God that incarnate in our midst. I would have liked to have asked him why innocent people suffer. Or deeper understandings of our theology or dogma or doctrine. He doesn't even care to go there. He simply says to them and us, love each other as I have loved you. That was his one and only way. It's a new commandment, he says to us, that you love each other. That, that this is the evangelical witness that we have. By this love of each other, he says, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Now, it's true that in every major worldwide religion, the golden rule is operative. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or the negative sense of that, don't do to others as you would not like them to do to you. But in Jesus' words, he raises the bar a thousand times. Now it's love each other, not as you would like them to love you, but love each other as I have loved you. Of all the images of love and the words of love that have been written and passed down through history, through all of the smirky country songs and smozzy Hollywood and television productions of love, for all of that said and done, the power of love Jesus Christ gives witness to blows them out, out, all out of the water. Love others as I have loved you, he told them his last night, which is to say, serve them, feed them, and heal them, forgive them, wash their swollen feet, and even die for them. Love others this way, he says. And this is what he says, his last words. They're simple words, of course, and almost impossibly difficult. But this is what I think it means to be the church. This is the church. Not primarily about the way we worship, the way we sing our songs and the music we do. It's not primarily about our missions and ministries that we manifest here at Riverside, which are really powerful. It's not primarily about the process and policy and, and politics that we use in this church or any church in order to get stuff done. It's about how we relate to each other in this community of faith called the church, this microcosm of the kingdom of God. You see, this is what community life is all about. Not, how, not what we do out there, but who we are in here. And this is, I think, the primary reason we have been brought together through whatever means and for whatever reasons we have been brought, through sometimes our comic and sometimes our tragic stories that we have been brought to learn how to love each other as Jesus has loved us. Simple, but not easy. He says it's a new commandment, it's our charge, our purpose, our goal, to learn to love each other simply, as Jesus did. It's the hardest thing there is. It means we're called to pray for those that we may not be close to. In fact, even those that we may have some animosity with, some hurt or disappointment. It means to forgive those Seven times seventy, or however many times it takes for us to forgive each other so that it's no longer an issue on our hearts. It means that we're called to ask forgiveness and to say we're sorry. In spite of that stupid book, Love Story, that we grew up with in the 70s, where it said love means never having to say you're sorry. In fact, love means saying you're sorry Seven times seventy, if it takes it. 
Sometimes by grace and by the Spirit of God, we do it. Something happens that's beyond us that picks us up and we find ourselves going to someone that we need to forgive or to be forgiven by and we sit down with them and we have lunch with them and the next thing you know we are hugging each other because of this power of the love of Christ that has entered into our table fellowship and we now show again the world what community life is all about. I shake my head at the number of words and the number of programs and the number of opportunities that crosses my desk about how the church can be better evangelists and how we can bring more people from the world into the church and we can hire consultants who can come in and give us the top ten ways to do church growth. I think Jesus pretty well spelled it out. Love each other as he loves us. By this, he says, they will know that you are my disciples, and I suspect when we do that, and when we give witness to that, that our doors will be teeming with people who are looking for an authentic community of faith where people actually try to live according to the way of Christ, the only way of Christ. Frederick Brigner tells of Episcopal rector friend of his who had the annual Christmas pageant that we do here and they were all gathered up at the chancellaria, Mary in her wonderful royal blue and Joseph in his cotton beard and all the shepherds with their staffs and a couple of people dressed like sheep and the wise men all gathered there and then they call forth for all the children in the congregation who weren't already in the pageant, who had already been told and dressed up like angels, to come forward and gather around and sing the angelic heavenly hosts, glory to God and the Father. You know the scene. Except for this little nine-year-old girl who was short in stature and slow to get up there, and she's at the very back of this thing, and she's on tiptoe and craning her head, and she can't see anything. And after they sang the hallelujah, in that moment of quiet, she yelled out, Let Jesus show! The rector said that he made the decision, the best decision he'd made that he can remember, to end the worship service right there. There was more to go, but he said, you can't beat that. And so he announced the benediction and everybody walked out. This is what Beekner wrote. Yes, let Jesus show. For there is much that hides him. Even the church itself hides him sometimes with all the business and politics and meetings and even our services of worship, which run the risk of becoming only a kind of performance. On some Sundays better, on some worse. And on only the rarest occasions does anything strike to the quick the way that little girl's cry did with every last person who heard her, realizing that Jesus didn't show for any of them the mystery and miracle of Jesus with all his extraordinary demands upon us, all his extraordinary promises, didn't show except every now and then. Let Jesus show in the churches that we have built for him 
and not cut him down to size in our worship and singing and prayers and do-gooderism. Through our stained glass windows and our architectures, that doesn't do it. Let Jesus show in the way we live in community with each other. The most important thing we can do is to show what his love and his life are all about. In the end, when it comes time for us to gather around us, our loved ones, then we will have far less to say because the way we have lived our lives has already said it. Let Jesus show. Let us bring forward the gifts of our lives and our labors.